Welcome back to Horoscope Witch. It's Mal, and hey, my friends. I'm so excited to be hanging out with you today. We have arrived at part two of The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine Aaron. Um, this is our current book club, current Horoscope Witch book club. As you know, if you're a member, you know this is the easiest book club you've ever joined because you don't actually even have to read the book. The only thing is required is that I don't know, you you like listening to me talk about this book? <laughs> um, so really, that's what the book club is. It's just me kind of bringing to the podcast certain books that have really inspired me on my spiritual path. The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine Aaron has definitely been a game changer for me, especially when it comes to things like accepting that I'm a highly sensitive person um, and also things like self-parenting, self-care, even th- some things with trauma, things like that. So it's it's a really great book. I recommend you read it, but even if you don't, I'm it's totally fine. We can just chat about it over the podcast. So in this episode today, we will be sort of talking a lot about the inner child and the pre-verbal infant stage of a highly sensitive person. Also how that leads into us having different attachment styles when it comes to our parents and also how our attachment styles with our parents affects not only our relationships as adults but also the way we care for our needs now. Okay so if any of those topics like attachment trauma or inner child trauma or pre-verbal infant trauma feel particularly triggering at the moment, maybe come back to this episode later or when you are in a safer place with yourself. I will say there are some pretty like deep things we're talking about in this episode. So either way, you know, make sure you're well taken care care of. Make sure your, your inner child and everybody's on board right now and feeling comfortable and safe. And, um, but granted this also, this episode could also help with those things too. So I'll just put that out there just in case, just in case we'll just say it. And also keep in mind too, I don't know if some people are just arriving to this episode for the first time. Maybe you don't know who I am. Um, do know that, um, although I have a deep interest in psychology, (laughs) I am not a therapist. I am not a psychologist. I didn't, in college, I think I took like one class. I don't even think it was a psychology class though. I think it was um, an education class and it was about childhood development. So keep this in mind. I am not an expert and also, um, and we will be talking about some topics that have to do with psychology in this book because this book is quite frankly, just kind of like a psychology book. So just know that I'm not an expert and know that it's okay if we have differing opinions on certain things, right? I tend to be the type of person who questions everything, (laughs) Um, including modern Western psychology, right? And that's what I like about Elaine Aaron. Elaine Aaron seems to be doing that as well. So keep that in mind. Take things that I say with a grain of salt and also with the certain psychological um, 
theories that we'll be talking about today, like attachment theory, uh, I would suggest um, if that really rings a bell with you or whatever, um, I would suggest going to another resource too to learn more about it. Don't let me just be your one and only educator about the subject because again, there's probably a much more qualified person to teach you about it, but I did my best, okay? Uh, And really, that's about it. Thanks so much for your support on this specific book club book. It seems like there's a lot of interest and I just knew, I just knew my listeners were highly sensitive people on the other side. I could just feel it this whole time, but (laughs) I think doing this book club book has really shown me that I have quite a few empaths and highly sensitive people who follow this podcast, which makes me really happy and you guys are awesome. I also wanted to say thank you for anybody who has left me a review on Apple Podcasts recently. Um, I mentioned in a recent podcast that I'm almost at 100 ratings slash reviews on Apple Podcasts and you guys are helping me getting helping me get closer to that goal. So thank you so so much. I read all of those reviews on in my worst moments just so you know like <laughs> like those reviews may or may not help me not quit everything at in certain moments in my life so thank you for those reviews i truly appreciate it and that's about it you may i just wanted to mention this quickly too if you follow me on instagram i'm guys i'm just I'm really having a moment here with Instagram. I think this is sort of my Mars, one of my Mars retrograde, um, like musings or my Mars retrograde lessons. I'm trying to figure out if social media and Instagram can really be a good place for me and my energy, especially as a highly sensitive person, right? So I'm not saying I'm going to disappear from Instagram anytime soon. At the very least, I'll probably start doing a sort of hit it and quit it kind of method with Instagram. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like sort of like post it and then delete the app or or go to witch church, have a witch church or film a video posting it and then getting off the app for X amount of time. I'm really just trying to not scroll as much because I'm truly addicted to it. Anyways. I'm also getting a very deep intuitive feeling about an ominous future with social media in general. Like I'm, I'm truly not sure how long us as humans will have Instagram as we know it. Like I'm not sure. I feel like in the next couple of years something might change with the technology or with the platform. I don't know. I'm getting some weird vibes from that in my guides. So I'll just put that out there. For anybody else who resonates, let me know. Have your guides been telling you the same thing? Because um, I can't be the only one. Um, long story short, really, one of the best ways to stay connected with me, let's say Instagram blows up tomorrow. Okay, what do we do? <laughs> well, I'll be on the podcast, but if you go to my website, which is in the link in the show notes, if you go to the main homepage of my website and you scroll down, you'll see this little thing that says sign up for my newsletter. So if you do feel called to stay connected with me in case <laughs> Instagram blows up, um, go ahead and sign up for my newsletter. If you feel called, no pressure. I know we all get a ton of annoying emails and it's fine. 
if you don't want your inbox to be emailed with emails from me. I do promise though, I only send one email a week at the most. Most of the time it's like one every other week to once a week, once a week at the most. And um, I do put a couple announcements in there about my business and about certain offerings like getting on the wait list for my next tarot class and things like that. But mainly my newsletter is to just serve you and I give you a little astrological weekly forecast in that newsletter. So I tell you a little bit about the astrology for the upcoming week. You know, people people really like it. I- I'm not going to lie to you. I've gotten some great ratings on my newsletter. <laughs> People have told me they look forward to it. That's all I'm saying. Okay. So if you want to sign up for that, again, website, main page, scrolling down, you'll see the sign up for my newsletter box. Okay, my friends, let's get into the highly sensitive person book stuff. Um, And okay, love you. Bye. All right, friends, let's get into the book. I am on page 33. If you are following along, I'm on the um, the part on page 33 that says it's a section called How Trust Becomes Mistrust and the Unfamiliar Becomes Dangerous. Hmm, this is interesting. Sounds sounds kind of familiar to what we're all going through right now. <laughs> How trust becomes mistrust and unfamiliar becomes dangerous. It says, most research, researchers on temperament have studied short-term arousal. It's easy to study for it is quite apparent from the higher levels of heartbeat, respiration, perspiration, pupil dilation, and adrenaline. Okay, so again, basic definition of short-term arousal is when your nervous system is aroused short-term, okay? So someone like sneaks up on you and scares you, or there's like a moment in the day where you're like, you know, you start to get worried about something, but then you realize it was for nothing and it passes. That's sort of this idea of short-term arousal, right? So on page 33, she says, there is another system of arousal, however, that is governed more by hormones. It goes into action just as quickly, but the effect of its main product, cortisol, is most noticeable after 10 to 20 minutes. An important point is when cortisol is present, the short-term arousal response is almost even more likely. That is, the long-term type of arousal makes us even more excitable, more sensitive than before. Okay. So again, she's not talking about like the kind of excitable that's like, woohoo, we're going to a party. Although highly sensitive people wouldn't say that. (laughs) woohoo, we're going home by ourselves. Um, it's not that, (laughs) it's not that kind of excitement. It's more like the nervous system is like revved up and long-term arousal, um, according to this book, from what I'm understanding is this sort of idea that the cortisol is present, whether it's, um, is hormonally present. And what it's doing is it's sort of lengthening that flight or fight, flight, or freeze kind of reaction, right? And 
Here, continuing, most of the effects of cortisol occur over hours or even days. They are maintained, they, sorry, they are mainly measured in blood, saliva, or urine. So studying long-term arousal is less convenient. But psychologist Megan Gunner of the University of Minnesota thought that the whole point of the pause-to-check system might be to pr- pr- protect the individual from this unhealthy, unpleasant long-term arousal. Okay, so we'll get into what the pause and check system is. It has to do with um, kind of different parenting techniques when it comes to infants, okay? And this is the really interesting study that I wanted to share with you all. And this is like, it kind of sounds kind of boring at first, but it's really short, I promise, and it makes a really good point about the highly sensitive child. Um, and But before we get into the study, it says here, research shows that when people first encounter something new and potentially threatening, the short-term response always comes first. Meanwhile, we start to consider our resources. What are our abilities. What have we learned about this sort of situation from the past? Who is around who might help out? If we think we or those of us can cope with the situation, we stop seeing it as a threat. The short-term alert dies out and the long-term alarm never goes off. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, so this is this is one of the reasons, this is like the scientific explanation of I think why some of us have trouble kind of getting out of that fight, flight, or freeze trauma nervous system. It's this idea that we are displaying that long-term alarm, right? When maybe the thing that stressed us out happened like a couple days ago worth wondering, well, why, why am I not able to like get my nervous system or my response? Why am I not able to get myself back into equilibrium? Well, um, again, this study kind of shows that it might've even been something from like a pre-verbal infant time within yourself when you were a pre-verbal infant. So on page 34, Gunner demonstrated this process in an interesting experiment. She set up a threatening situation much like those Kagan uses to identify inhibited children. But first, the nine-month-old babies were separated from their mothers for a half an hour. Half were left with a very attentive babysitter who responded to all of the child's moods. The other half of the babies were left with a babysitter who was inattentive and unresponsive unless the child actually fussed or cried. Next, while alone with the babysitter, each nine-month-old was exposed to something startling new. Startlingly new. Okay, so remember, new experiences sort of set off that short-term response or that long-term response, depending on how your nervous system is wired, right? So on page 34, what is so important here is that only the highly sensitive baby with the inattentive babysitter showed more cortisol in their saliva. It was 
as if those with the attentive sitter felt they had a response and had no need to make long-term stress responses. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, so this is pretty cool to kind of understand this about the way the human mind works. And we can see this, like she said, in babies. Um, this sort of baby who was in distress and was not being attended to. And of course, this baby wasn't in any sort of um, like major trauma or anything. Like It's not like someone was holding him over a mountainside or anything. He was just sort of, uh, they were just kind of in a crib and maybe just not being attended to. What happens is that baby starts to get stressed out, right? Because babies can't communicate, oh, I need something or whatever. Um, that baby's nervous system starts to get stressed out, starts to produce cortisol, right? And perhaps it creates a long-term stress response. So I think this is really important to note because I think highly sensitive people were probably more likely to have this experience in like pre-verbal infant times within yourself. And why do, why were the highly sensitive babies the only babies to have this sort of long-term cortisol um, sort of activation. Well, because what do highly sensitive people do? What are highly sensitive people good at? We're good at sort of intuiting the environment, right? Uh, we're good at wondering like, okay, is there a saber-toothed tiger around the corner, right? <laughs> um, so even as babies, we were doing this to some extent right? And here it says on page 34, suppose that caretaker is your own mother. Psychologists observing babies with their mothers have discovered certain signs that tell them if a child feels quote-unquote securely attached. Um, a secure child feels safe to explore and new experiences are not usually a threat. Other signs indicate that a child is insecurely attached. The mothers of these children are either too protective or too neglectful. We'll get into more um, information on that as we go down. But what I think is the most important to understand is that it's not necessarily i'll just read it okay on page 34 one can see why it is important that young highly sensitive people and older ones too stay out in the world trying things rather than retreating but the feelings about their caretakers have been have have to be secure and their experiences have to be successful or their reasons not to approach will only be proved true all of this started out before you could even talk okay wow isn't that isn't that pretty profound like even an adult who has like a hard time trying new things or a hard time putting themselves out there a hard time trying new things it's not to say we should ever shame ourselves for this right um and it's not again it's not the goal of the highly sensitive person at least my opinion it's not the goal of the highly sensitive person to become something that we're not or strive to be extroverted or whatever it may be but these sort of patterns and these attitudes really did start very 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 young and i think it's important to realize that when we're kind of doing our own shadow work and also can i just say that um 
that some people, um, you know, there's this whole discussion that, you know, I think there's a misunderstanding about what trauma is. And I don't think trauma has to be this one horrific experience that, you know, I don't think that's the definition of trauma. Now, in no way am I discounting, you know, anybody who actually has been through a really horrific experience that they would categorize as trauma, right? Obviously, um, you know, that is trauma. But I think there's different levels or different spectrums of trauma that we have to be aware of. And I think for the highly sensitive infant, let's go back to that study. Even the highly sensitive infant, what if it wasn't a study? Like, what if you really were that infant? And what if you did have a babysitter who was um, inattentive to you when you cried or inattentive to your needs and that happened to you every single day during your nonverbal developmental time? Okay, you see where I'm going with this? That would be categorized as a trauma and that would be enough to throw off or somehow, I don't want to say throw off, but that would be enough to, again, have that infant producing a irregular amount of cortisol, which could then affect the nervous system for the rest of your life, right? So I don't know. I think if there's an experience you have in this life where, let's say, you really, really, truly can't conceive of anything that could have caused you trauma, I think the things that we don't remember about our preverbal infant times are just as important. Just because we don't remember shit doesn't mean it's not affecting us. Um, there's something that um, oh, I, I'm not even going to try to quote it, but there's something that the um, psychological astrologer Liz Green, she says this in, I believe, her book called The Astrology of Fate. But she says something like, the things that we don't remember govern us just as much as the things we do remember right? So again, if you're kind of like, where is this anxiety coming from? Or where is this depression coming from? Or where are, is all of this nervous system stuff that's happening with me? Where is it coming from? Well, forgive yourself because it might be coming from pre-verbal times. And, uh, and I think that's valid, right? Um, and see, this is why too, I tend to veer on the side of everything is trauma, <laughs> and I know that might sound kind of dramatic to some of you because there's definitely this kind of thought process, I think. I think there's a side of the coin that some people think, and again, I'm not saying this is necessarily wrong. I'm just saying this isn't my opinion. But some people will say, well, um, depression and anxiety, it's just a chemical imbalance. Well, okay, that's fine. That's valid. For me, my opinion's a little bit differently. I think it's way, way more than just a chemical imbalance, right? I think everything comes from trauma, um, even pre-verbal trauma that you may not remember. And who's to say that um, pre-verbal trauma where you were left unattended by a caretaker, where you started producing more cortisol than what was normal for an infant at that time, Who's to say that can't affect you as a 
seven or 45 year old person, right? Um, Like, again, just because it happened to you as a baby doesn't mean it's insignificant, right? Like, that's what I'm, that's where I'm kind of going with this. So I definitely veer on the side of like, everything is trauma. (laughs) Like, and and I don't mean to laugh at that. But um, yeah, I definitely veer on this side of everybody has some kind of trauma. And if we have something like, anxiety or depression there's a part of me that doesn't believe or doesn't um there's a part of me that feels like it's we're missing something to just simply view that as a chemical imbalance that came out of nowhere like I'm sorry I just think we're missing something and again I don't want to argue with anybody I don't want to like threaten anybody's um anybody's truth and if that's not your truth I think we can agree to disagree and we can both still get something out of this episode so I I welcome different perspectives I just I don't necessarily want to argue with you but I, I I understand that I understand the other perspective as well so on page 35 going a little bit deeper into that when parents do nothing special to help a sensitive child feel safe Whether the child becomes truly inhibited probably depends on the relative strength of the activation and pause to check system. But remember that some parents and and environments make the matter much worse. Certainly repeated frightening experiences will strongly reinforce caution, especially experiences of failing to be calmed or helped. of being punished for actively exploring, and of having others who should be helpful becoming dangerous instead. Another important point is that the more cortisol in an infant's body, the less the child will sleep, and the less sleep, the more cortisol. In the daytime, the more cortisol, the more fear, the more fear, the more cortisol. Uninterrupted sleep at night and timely naps all reduce cortisol in infants. And remember, lower cortisol also means fewer short-term alarms. It was easy to see that this was a constant problem with certain highly sensitive people. It may have been for you too. Furthermore, if sleep problems begin in infancy are not controlled, they may last into adulthood and make a highly sensitive person almost unbearably sensitive. So get your sleep. <laughs> and I think um, I-, I think that the, sl- the sleep issues that highly sensitive people have a lot of the times, I, I think sleep issues definitely, like Elaine Aaron is saying, may have may have derived from um, some kind of pre-verbal infant sort of occurrence that sort of just continued. And like she said, these things can continue into adulthood. Um, and here on page 36, depth psychologists place a great emphasis on the unconscious and the experiences embedded there repressed or simply pre-verbal that continue to govern our adult life. It is not surprising that highly sensitive children and adults too have a hard time with sleep and report more vivid, alarming archetypal dreams. With the coming of darkness, subtle sounds and shapes begin to rule the imagination and the highly sensitive people sense them more. There are, are also the unfamiliar experiences of the day, some only half noticed, some totally repressed. 
All of them swirl in the mind just as we are relaxing the conscious mind so that we can fall asleep. Falling asleep, staying asleep, going back to sleep when awakened require an ability to soothe oneself, to feel safe in the world. Um, so that's, oh gosh, I love that because, you know, thing, very basic, very basic things that we all need to do as humans, like sleep and eat. Okay. And what are the things that a lot of highly sensitive people and people with trauma, I'm not likening the two, right? Because as a highly sensitive person, there's a chance that you might not relate to some of the things I'm saying because you might have had, like Elaine Aaron said, you might have had a secure attachment to your caretaker. So you might not be having these problems, right? But a highly sensitive person who uh, was insecurely attached to their parents or, um, you know, had some kind of trauma or whatnot, you know, those basic needs, like soothing oneself so one can go to sleep slash feeling safe enough to nurture and feed yourself, you see how those are very primal things. Very, very primal things. And honestly, those are the only two things that you really do when you're an infant, right? So someone um, who really inspires me, Demetra George, um, again, not a psychologist, but to my knowledge, but in a, a really amazing astrologer, um, Demetra George talks about um, in her book, Asteroid Goddesses. She talks about asteroid Ceres being the sort of um, mother harvest goddess. Ceres relates to the... Um, the Roman goddess Demeter or Demeter. So this idea that, um, you know, people in the chart who might have afflicted Ceres um, may also have um, a very complicated relationship with food, at times a very maybe disordered relationship with food. But the root of that is that the fact that Ceres is the mother harvest goddess, right? So when Ceres is afflicted in your chart, it's sort of this like mother archetype is afflicted in your chart. That part of you that um, is uh, is needing care and nourishment, um, needing to figure out how to soothe oneself is not operating in an optimal way, right? Again, this isn't something to like shame ourselves about and I'm just trying to make a, t- a quick tie to astrology, but this is what that part reminded me of. It reminded me that um, it's really, really important for the highly sensitive person slash um, the person with sleep um, like sleep challenges or the person with challenges when it comes to their relationship with food, whatever it is, or the person with trauma. Um, I think reparenting is sort of everything. Like we can't, we literally can't heal these issues unless we go to the root of what it is, which is uh, like a kind of attachment with our own caretakers, but then as an adult, it's about reparenting ourselves, right? Um, so I guess too, from from my perspective, um, like you know, I'm the kind of person who, I, at least in my healing practice, I, I like to kind of find ways where where 
we're getting more to the root of things, you know, instead of kind of surface level fixes. So if you're having a sleeping problem, you could go to the doctor and get a sleeping pill, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Because certainly insomnia is maddening and I'm definitely not the type of person who would ever be like a prescription drug shamer. I promise you that's not me. Um, But at the same time, Uh, like if we really want to get to the bottom of insomnia or if we want to get to the bottom of sleep issues, we're probably going to have to get to the bottom of like, um, attachment issues, right. And, and self-soothing issues. And, um, you know, this is where, this is why I'm like trying to sort of manifest maybe, um, me eventually, um, like doing my healing work very closely to um, a, a holistic therapist or someone who we can sort of work together because I think this is sort of what's missing. We need that bridge between the astrology stuff because the astrology stuff can so help try to un- like help with unpacking this, I think, for sure. Um, tarot cards as well, but astrology definitely. Um, any sort of energetic or holistic body work can really help. But then we also need the therapy side of it too. So I think I, I really, really hope in the next 10 years I can help and I can be involved with this sort of meshing with the meshing of the holistic healing arts that I'm into and the meshing with depth psychology. Cause I think that's how really so many people are going to heal. And can I just say, I'm kind of feeling called, I'm feeling divinely inspired to say this at the moment. I think it's probably a message from spirit, but if you're like here and you're, um, you're listening to this right now, um, you know, you are like, such a sacred deep soul and you know I almost feel like I'm gonna cry when I'm saying this um but you are like your soul is so much stronger than you give yourself credit for and the fact that you are trying to even heal this stuff (laughs) or even like dip your toe into healing these very very deep roots of of whether it be your trauma or your childhood or even your pre-verbal infant stages or whatever it may be, even by just even dipping your toe into healing this, um, you're, you're most likely doing something that your soul has never done before and that your ancestors have never done before. So it, it's quite an accomplishment, right? So definitely don't think that any of this stuff is easy to face because it's not. Um, And I definitely would never say that it's easy to face, right? So let's go into attachment style when it comes to the highly sensitive person. Um, But oh, before we do that, let's first get into what the infant body self is. So Elaine Aaron sort of coins this phrase on page 43. Um, Yeah, this infant body self. um, It's sort of her own version or her own definition of the inner child, I would say is the best way to put it. But it's important to to kind of grasp this concept of the infant body self. So let's figure out what this means. 
Um, so Elaine on page 43 says, think of what the infant and the body have in common. First, both are wonderfully content and cooperative when they are not overstimulated, worn out, and hungry. Second, when babies and sensitive bodies really are exhausted, both are largely helpless to correct things on their own. The baby, you, relied on a caretaker to set limits and satisfy your simple basic needs, and your body relies on you to do it now. Both also cannot use words to explain their troubles. Okay, again, neither the infant inside of you or your physical body can use words to explain their troubles. That was kind of a wake-up call when I read that, to be honest. I was like, wow, yeah, like how many times do I expect my inner child or expect my body to just tell me what it needs and I'm like mean to it when it doesn't right and I'm like expecting words from something that can only give me an energy right so continuing they can only give louder and louder signals for help or develop a symptom so serious it cannot be ignored the wise caretaker knows that much woe is avoided by responding to the infant body at the first sign of distress okay i think this is kind of a nice thing when it comes to self-parenting like maybe the first one of the first steps to self-parenting is just responding to yourself and not overriding your physical or your physical needs if that makes sense because it's so hard though to get in that mindset because capitalism, patriarchy, societal conditioning has taught us to just override, override, override everything. And funny how, it's not really funny, but funny how like when we override our body and we override our infant self we also override our healing which then overrides our evolution as human souls right and then we continue to be sort of repressed by these um by these oppressive systems right now it's a lot more complicated than that don't get me wrong and obviously everybody's operating for the most part from an unconscious place so don't think I'm like shaming anybody for operating in this way but we see how this is all connected right and finally on page 43 finally as we noted in the last chapter caretakers who think newborn babies or bodies can be spoiled and should be quote-unquote left to cry are wrong research demonstrates that if a small infant's crying is responded to promptly uh, that infant will cry less not more when older okay so this relates back to this sort of um uh the the sort of idea that especially for the highly sensitive person or the highly sensitive infant it could be extremely detrimental to that child's nervous system to sort of have the let it let them cry out kind of method like let them just soothe themselves let them cry themselves or whatever obviously i'm not a parent and i'm not very well read on that philosophy but according here to uh, Elaine Aaron, the sort of, um, that sort of, I guess, understanding that if you, 
Um, if you soothe your baby every time they cry or every time they need something, they will somehow become spoiled. You know, like she's saying, like that's that's pretty much not true. You know, I think the the infant literally needs a caretaker to respond to them. You know, and these are the things that do produce, um, that do lead to that sort of long term production of cortisol in infants. And these are also the things that if they're if there's it's happening a lot in that um, preverbal infant stage, these things could. Um, could absolutely affect us as an adults. Like if an infant's, um, you know, high level of cortisol production is messing with its sleep, which then never gets resolved, and then that infant grows up to be an adult who has, again, that same like high level of cortisol production where they can't sleep. Um, if that can happen with our sleep, that other stuff is definitely could be affected too, right? Um, so it says here, this is a good tip for self-parenting. This infant body self is an expert on sensitivity. She has been sensitive from the day she was born. She knows what was hardest then and what is hardest now. He knows what you lacked, what you learned from your parents and other caretakers about how to treat him, what he needs now, and how you can take care of him in the future. By starting here, we will make use of old, the old adage, well begun is half done. Okay, I don't really know what that phrase means. I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I think that part, though, is important because it's this sort of knowing that inside of you, you know, this sort of, there is that infant body self that knows exactly what you need and that can be very empowering. And I think that's really what we mean when we say self-care or self-parenting. It is kind of going inside and figuring out what that what that infant body needs from you in that moment and i think that would be a really important concept for everybody to know especially the people who um, maybe don't have the resources to go to therapy or uh, maybe don't feel ready to to seek any sort of healer or help or therapist in sort of unpacking their trauma i think that's okay not to be ready but in the meantime just just having that sort of reestablishing a connection between you and your infant body self and starting to get to know like what that infant body really needs from you and sort of becoming your own parent can be a very very powerful thing but way harder than than I just made it sound okay <laughs> now let's talk finally now about attachment theory. So you may be, you may be familiar with attachment theory. You may not be. Um, if you, I, I, I'm like the kind of person who follows like a million and one therapists on, on Instagram. So I, I definitely feel like I, I've seen a lot of content about attachment theory in the past couple years, but maybe you're not and that's okay. Um, it's really just this idea that, We'll go into the examples of, of why this happens, but it's the idea that um, you are either securely attached to your caretaker or you were insecurely attached to your caretaker. And in within the um, within the, those who were in, insecurely attached to their caretaker, um, there are three main um, 
attachment styles within this insecure attachment. And those are anxious, avoidant, and ambivalent. Now, I know different people call them different things, but just for the purpose of this um, podcast, we'll be calling it anxious, avoidant, or ambivalent, which ambivalent meaning is a sort of mix of anxious and avoidant. So knowing your attachment style can also be very helpful on your journey of healing, right? And this is sort of the stuff that the... um, the self-care industry, you know, this is this is stuff that like a bath bomb or like a face mask like isn't going to do much for this, right? Like to really know your uh, attachment um, theory, this is what's actually going to make a difference in, in your healing. Um, it's, so let's just get into it. So page 44. Now and then, for various reasons, usually having to do with how the mother or father was raised... Yeah, let's just let's just sit on that for a second. For various reasons, usually having to do with how the mother or father was raised. Okay. So we only know what we know. So let me just put that out there here. Like, you know, it's not my my intention at all with this podcast to sort of attack any parents or any sort of parenting styles. We only know what we know. We only know what our parents taught us, you know. Um, and usually, I think, you know, typically, I'm not saying all parents are like this, but some parents, um, how do I put this? When I look at, like, let's say the years the year from okay let's say from the 20th century to the 21st century so let's say the past 100 years give or take how I see the evolution of parenting is sort of um like up until recently I think the choice to become a parent was very much like an unconsciously programmed yes I think to and this is something that I think a lot of the boomers um, would have experienced. So whether they want to admit it or not, I think this is something like this sort of conditioning around like it's just what you do. Like you have kids, right? Um, like this is just yeah, like because their parents did the same for them, right? That's why they're literally called the baby boomer um, generation. Um, this sort of idea that kids are just something you just pop out. You don't really think about it that much. You just get knocked up and have all these kids, right? No big deal. Um, But then I see there was sort of a shift. I think once the boomers started having kids coming into the Gen Z millennial kind of era, now we have a sort of a little bit more of an intention. Like, do I want to have kids? Do I not want to have kids? Um, But still, um, I think just now we're kind of getting into um, a little bit more of that psychological parenting where we're really thinking like, okay, what is the best way to raise a kid, right? Um, what's the best way to raise a kid where their nervous system is supported or whatever it may be? Um, so I just say that because I don't think people sought out, I, I in no, in no way am I accusing parents or parents in any of this and I don't want I don't want anybody to interpret me as doing so 
Um, but I think the unconscious parenting that happened a hundred years ago, um, the sort of like, oh yeah, let's just have some kids pop them out and you know, they'll be fine. Just, (laughs) they, they raise themselves. I, I think that created quite a mess nervous system wise right (laughs) and I think most therapists would agree with me and now we're kind of like healing through that and being like okay (laughs) um what do we do how do we how do we heal our nervous systems from this sort of parenting right So again, finally, going back to 44, now and then for various reasons, usually having to do with how the mother or father was raised, a primary caretaker may give one or two messages creating an insecure attachment. One is that the world is so awful or the caretaker is so preoccupied or vulnerable that the infant must hang on very, very tightly. The child does not dare to explore very much. Maybe the caretaker does not want exploring or would leave the infant behind if he or she did not hang on. These babies are said to be anxious about or preoccupied with their attachment to the caretaker. Okay, so what was just explained was the anxious attachment style, right? So if you experience something along those lines in, um, in childhood, you may be classified as having, you know, anxious, an anxious attachment, right? Um, now let's go into what avoidant attachment looks like. The other message an infant may receive is that the caretaker is dangerous and ought to be avoided or values more highly a child who is minimal trouble and very independent. Perhaps the caretaker is too stressed to care for a child. And there are those who at times in anger or desperation even want the infant to disappear or die, right? In that case, the infant will do best not to be attracted at all. Such infants are said to be avoidant. When separated from their mothers or fathers, they seem quite indifferent. Sometimes, of course, a child is securely attached to one parent or not the other. I also think it's possible to have anxious attachment to one parent and avoidant attachment to another parent. So I think the the options are endless here. So the important thing being... From our first attachment experience, we tend to develop a rather enduring mental idea of what to expect from someone we are close to and depend on. While that may seem to make for rigidity and lost opportunities, meeting your first caretaker's desire about how you, at- how you were attached was important for your survival. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, yes. So that's important to note. This is primal. Like attachment theory isn't just like, oh, haha, I have like anxious attachment, like daddy issues. Like, no, no, no. Like it's, it's much deeper than that. Like it's the idea that your survival as a child depended on you adapting to this attachment style with your caretaker. Okay, so if you adapted to like a fucked up way of attaching to a caretaker, right, for no fault of your own, let me be clear, right, like none of this was your fault. And honestly, consciously, it probably wasn't the parent's fault either, right? 
but we can go into that. Um, doesn't mean there's still not anger or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, that relationship is primal, right? It's like caveman. (laughs) That relationship is so important. And um, if we go our whole lives having, being sort of unconscious about our attachment style to our parent or our main caretakers, uh, we will then continue to sort of attract these relationships that sort of mimic those attachments, right? Or they're the opposite, right? Um, so we'll get into that though, going, going deeper into the chapter. So again, meeting your first caretaker's desires about how you attached was important for your survival. Even when it ceases to be a matter of survival, the program is still there and very conservative, sticking to whichever plan works to be secure, anxious, or avoidant protects against making dangerous mistakes okay um and here i wanted to read something let's fast forward to page 70 really quick um elaine aaron has a little section here that says highly sensitive people and attachment this part is so important um you know going off of what we just talked about she says on page 70 when i found a I found a slight tendency for more highly sensitive people than non-highly sensitive people to show one of the non-secure attachment styles as adults. That does not mean the trait creates the situation. It probably reflects the way a sensitive child is more aware of the subtle cues in any relationship. Wow, isn't that, that almost like blows your mind, right? Um, it, it feels like, yeah, like it's not, highly sensitive people are not more likely to be insecurely attached because they're weaker or, or because of their sensitivities, right? But they're more likely to be, um, they, they might be more likely to be insecurely attached to their caretakers because as children, we would have picked up on way more subtle cues from our parents than the average um, kid, right? And if we know anything about the development of self-esteem, um, which is different than self-confidence, right? I mean, I'm the living example of someone who has self-confidence but struggles with self-esteem. They're two different things. Um, self-esteem is is sort of this root of how you were made to feel about yourself as a kid from your caretakers. And I also think that because of highly sensitive people and the way they were able to intuit subtle cues and subtle energetic shifts from their caretakers may um this may have contributed to their their feelings about themselves and maybe them being bad right because let's say you were um let's say your attachment style by the way i think you can be a mix of both we we talked about this being an ambiguous kind of attachment style where 
a parent may have given you um, both messages that it was unsafe to leave them, but it also was uns- or it was also unsafe to be with them at the same time. That can also be a really common um, common experience as well. Um, but let's say that as a toddler, you cried and you needed your parent to be there for you for whatever reason, right? Now, if a parent responded to you in a negative way, responded to your needs in a really negative way, but it didn't even have to be verbal. It could have been as little as their body language or their energy shift. Remember, you would have picked up on that, right? And going (laughs) and then making this sort of full circle, I hope, I really hope this isn't too confusing, but I know I'm hitting on a lot of points here, but going back to what I said earlier in the episode about um, how I kind of am more on the team of everything is trauma instead of nothing is trauma, right? Um, Or like very few things are trauma. I'm definitely on the team of everything is trauma. Um, You know, you just can't convince me that, I mean, it's not that I'm not open to the other opinion, but like the highly sensitive person is picking up on so much who's to say who's the who's the measuring stick of what is trauma and what is not right who's to say that um a highly sensitive person who's intuiting that their parent is in distress um or their parent is sort of annoyed with their needs or their parent is in distress about their child's needs and this is intuited in some energetic nonverbal way between the parent and child and this goes on the entire childhood who's to say that isn't a trauma and who's to say that trauma cannot be the reason as to why you are suffering with depression and anxiety and you know your nervous system feels jacked up half the time as an adult right in that case you would have no memory of oh my god this horrible thing happened right in front of my eyes and it was this horrible trauma no, see it's not that right but it's not but that minor experience of continuing to intuit something about your parents internal life right um as a kid that can become very traumatic right so i just say this because i think this can kind of be the missing piece or one of the keys to our our own healing in a way like to kind of recognize these things and by the way i will say that when i first learned about uh, attachment style maybe maybe about a year ago haven't have not you know, studied it in depth or anything like that. This is just kind of what I know from this book and a couple other books. Uh, Oh, I, my friends, I felt shattered by this, um, by this news. Like, (laughs) like I, um, like literally I felt like psychologically shattered by the idea when I realized that, um, that there was some insecure attachment within me. Like I felt like, up oh, just another fucked up thing about me that I'm adding to the list like and I know that sounds pe- pessimistic but I didn't at first I felt like it was sort of um just this like sentence to 
fuckery. Like, I'm like, great. (laughs) Another thing that I need to heal. I don't, I just didn't have a very good attitude about it, which is fine because it's threatening, right? That's the thing. I think that's why people, maybe some people or some, even some therapists or some psychologists might underestimate the power of, um, the attachment that one had to one's caretakers because it's threatening. It's threatening to the human psyche to think that um, your your parent who is um, who was once your main source of survival or whatnot, it's very threatening to think that they they weren't, you know, they weren't attaching to you in a healthy way, right? Um, you, you can see why some people disagree with some of this stuff because it sort of, it, it sort of shatters maybe their perception of their own parent or it can, um, it can just be kind of a rough awakening. Now, let me be clear here though. I think that just because you have, um, one of these insecure attachment styles does not mean like, it doesn't necessarily mean that one of your parents was narcissistic or you were a product of abuse. It could certainly mean that, but I don't think it has to be. I think sometimes too, like the highly sensitive person is on a spectrum. I think also attachment styles are on a spectrum. So maybe you could have just simply experienced someone who was quote unquote, a great mom or a great dad, who they themselves had some anxiety issues about the world. Let's say they really expected the worst. And there were a couple things you picked up from them that made you afraid of the world. And now you recognize within yourself that there is a like slight tendency to an insecure slash anxious anxious attachment style right like that could be the situation and that's fine and I don't think that would really necessarily threaten your perception of your childhood or your your um upbringing or whatnot but I think if there's like a really major Yeah, I mean, there could just be like a major awakening too about um, like learning about this stuff, which then leads to, oh, my parent was, you know, perhaps emotionally abusive or even narcissistic in sometimes, and and that can just be a whole nother spiral to go down. <laughs> so the reason I bring this up is to just share that yes, this was hard for me to marinate with at first, and yes, I did feel like almost disempowered by learning about attachment style at first because again it didn't feel very empowering but I'm here to tell you that it can be empowering okay Um, because once you recognize within yourself um, if you do have that insecure attachment whether it's avoidant anxious or ambivalent whatever it may be um, this this is again another sort of that's the root that you've been looking for, right? And that's what I realized too. I was like, oh wow, like this is one of the roots. This is something that's at the core of my trauma. And that's good. I mean, every time we we find a root or a core piece of our trauma, um, that's kind of a, a key or an unlocking of something that we've been looking for for a while. 
Um, so I think it's good. And, and again, it all comes back to down to you being a parent to yourself, being able to self-parent your own body, your own infant. So if you know now, if you can now put into words that there's a part of your inner child, there's that's infant self or a part of you that is insecurely attached this is now something we can kind of work with right before we didn't have the words to work with it now we do right and um again i would suggest again i'm not a psychologist so if this is ringing a bell for you though i would suggest looking into attachment theory a little bit more in fact there is a book that has been highly recommended to me that i have not read yet but it's literally called attached I don't know who wrote it, but it's, you can find it. I mean, if you just Google it, it'll pop right up. It has a white background and it has some kind of red infinity symbol or, or shoelace or something on the front cover. Um, and it's literally called attached. So that will kind of take you through all of the attachment styles a little bit more in depth. And I'm telling you, like, once you kind of move past that, like, initial distress, um, it can really help on your healing journey. I think also, I will say, one of the f- reasons I think I felt a little bit distressed when I first um, when I first learned about attachment style is not only did it change my perception of my parents, my perception of my childhood, my perception of my life... <laughs> But um, it did also change my perception of a lot of the romantic relationships that um, really have been like a clusterfuck for me (laughs) in this lifetime. But here's the thing, like, you know, you can't blame yourself for what you were unconscious about in the past. And like Elaine Aaron said, like, until the, or like Carl Jung would say, until the conscious becomes or until the unconscious becomes conscious, we can't really heal the stuff, right? And like Elaine Aaron was saying, we will sort of repeat or act out these same attachment dynamics in our relationships until we make them conscious in some way, right? So I think attachment theory could be very good too, not only for highly sensitive people or people with trauma or whatever it may be. It could also be good for people who feel like I've never been able to find a really fulfilling relationship or like I, I feel like I'm cursed in love or, you know, what, whatever the, the fear or the feeling is. Looking at attachment theory can, can kind of illuminate some of that for you, right? Um, now, um, all right, let's skip over that for time's sake. And we're going to go into, okay, on 49, this is kind of important. Um, Elaine Aaron says, I do not mean to imply that those who were anxiously attached with overprotective or inconsistent caretakers are always overprotective of the infant body self or that those with negative um, or abusive caretakers always neglect or abuse their infant body self. It is not that simple. First, our minds are are such that we can easily overreact or compensate and do the opposite. Or more likely, we'll swing back and forth between the two extremes or apply them in different areas of life, i.e. overdoing it at work, protecting too much in intimate relationships, neglecting our mental health but over attending to our physical health etc etc 
Finally, you may have overcome all of this and be treating your body just fine. So again, she's saying that um, just because you have um, an anxious attachment style or an insecure attachment style of some sort does not mean you're doomed. You're Don't be like me. You know, when I first found out about this, I was like, I'm doomed. Um, you're not doomed. Uh, you know, and it also doesn't mean that you're doomed for any sort of unhealthy or toxic life. You can absolutely 100% I, I have full faith in you. You can absolutely form a secure attachment in this life. Okay. If anything, might be part of your, your soul contract, might be part of your karmic contract to come to a realization about this and now challenge yourself in some way to form a secure attachment. For some of us, um, that first secure attachment we have is with our therapist, right? Um, but for some of us too, I think we might get lucky and find secure attachment in um, in romantic relationships. That's the thing too. If you have some sort of insecure attachment, it doesn't necessarily mean your love life is fucked up, right? I think the insecurely attached person can find someone who's securely attached. I think it's, and it's not that it's rare, but I think... Um, I think, though, that we can't, um, I think we have to protect ourselves a little bit, although this could be coming from my own bias, so take this with a grain of salt, but I think it's probably better to, to start out informing, um, informing, informing, <laughs> uh, securely attached relationships with people like therapists or friends or something along those lines that feel like a little bit less low risk, right? So you can have a positive experience in attaching to someone securely so you then can go and attach to someone in a romantic way, in a successful way, you know? And again, healing is not linear. So we could be securely, feeling securely attached with our partner one day, and then the next week we feel a little bit of a trigger with our past of insecure attachment. You know, it, it's very much um, not linear, I don't think. So on page 51, Elaine Aaron says, um, now she's kind of talking about ways we can reparent our bodies. So as you reparent your body, the first thing to realize is that the more it avoids stimulation, the more arousing the remaining stimulation becomes. A teacher of meditation once told the story of a man who wanted nothing to do with the stress of his life. So he retreated to a cave to meditate day and night for the rest of his life. But soon he came out again, driven to overwhelming distress by the sound of the dripping water in the cave. The moral is that, at least to some extent, the stresses will always be there, for we bring our sensitivity with us. What we need is a new way of living with the stressors. Okay, I love this. This is very empowering because, again, if you were insecurely attached going out into the world, trying new things, doing new experiences, whatever it may be. And it, and then on top of that, being a highly sensitive person, right? It, it could be very hard now as an adult to maybe, maybe there are some behaviors in adulthood where you are sort of avoiding stimulation out of fear. Okay. So uh, believe me, I'm raising my hand right now. I'm guilty. I'm still very much am um, 
in some ways avoiding outside stimulation um but like the story says we can't like avoid fear our whole lives there has to be some way we sort of cope with our there has to be some ways we learn to cope with the world because highly sensitive people are meant to be participating in the world my friends highly sensitive people are not we need highly sensitive people, right? We can't have everybody here going into a cave. I'm sorry. I, I'm not going to let us do that, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll see. But um, we'll see who wins presidency. But um, <laughs> uh, but we can't. Society needs us. Remember, we have this evolutionary trait. We are only twenty percent of the human race. Um, we have this evolutionary trait to be creative. We're we're here to, in a way think of things that society didn't think about before us we're here to shift the paradigm so we really can't um we can't allow ourselves to hide our whole lives it's okay if we need more alone time than the average person that's perfectly fine um but we we do need to figure out within ourselves how to operate in this world right um and on 50 on page 52 though there's an opposite end of the spectrum there's sort of the, I'm going to go in my cave, I'm going to hide from the world. But then there's also the opposite end of the spectrum of being too out into the world, like in a way, forcing yourself to be in the world when your infant self is clearly telling you, please no, right? So 52, I'm being too out in the world. If the root of being too much is a belief that the infant body is defective, ooh, Ooh, think about that for a second. Do you believe you're too much? Right? Could that be could that be rooted back to your feelings about your infant body, right? If the root of being in too much is the belief that the infant body is defective, the root of being out too much is equally negative. It suggests that you love the child so little that you are willing to neglect and abuse it. And where did you get that attitude? It doesn't necessarily all come from parents. Our culture has an idea of competition in the pursuit of excellence that can make anyone not striving for the top level feel like worthless, non-productive bystanders. This applies not only to one's career, but even one's leisure. Are you fit enough? Are you pro progressing in your hobby? Are you competent as a cook or a gardener? And family life, is your marriage intimate enough? your sexual life optimal? Have you done all that you can do to raise excellent children? The infant body rebels under all of this pressure, signaling its distress. In response, we find ways to toughen it or to meditate it into silence. So the chronic stress-related symptoms arise like digestive problems, muscle tension, constant fatigue, insomnia, migraine headaches, or the weak immune system makes us susceptible to flu or colds. And finally, stopping the abuse first requires admitting it is just that. Um, it also helps to find what part of you is the abuser, right? Um, so 
yeah, gosh. See, I've I've felt both here, and this is probably going back to the fact that I have an ambivalent attachment style, right? So there's a part of me that is anxiously attached and avoidantly attached. Um, so for me, then in turn, I have experienced both the the kind of feelings of needing to be too much inward and needing to go into my cave but I have also felt myself abuse parts of myself by forcing myself to go out into the world right um you know and this over time jacks up the nervous system right (laughs) sorry I keep saying that but that's that's really how I think of it and I think we need to kind of get to the root of you know, why are we abusing ourselves in this way? Like, why are we forcing ourselves to be out when the infant child really needs to be in? And it could be coming from not only our relationship with our parents, but like Elaine Aaron says, perhaps this is more indicative of the society we were conditioned in, right? Um, And on 53, she talks about the balancing act. How much are you out in the world or how much you how much you are out in the world or how much you avoid it must be answered individually and will change with time. I realize too that for most people a time of time a lack of time and money makes balancing the balancing act very difficult. We are forced to make choices and set priorities, but being very conscientious, highly sensitive people often put themselves last. Or at least we give ourselves no more time off or opportunity to learn new skills than anyone else. In fact, however, we need more. Um, here is the wise advice of one highly sensitive person I interviewed. Okay, I really like this, guys. I'm 45. Sorry, I'm 54. You need to learn all about this sensitivity. It will be an obstacle or an excuse only if you allow it to be. For myself, when I am too withdrawn, I would like to stay home for the rest of my life, but that is self-destructive. So I go out and meet the rest of the world, then come back to incorporate them. Creative people need time without people, but they can't go too long. When you retreat, you lose your sense of reality, your adaptability. Okay, and then going down here, being in tune with your body, it is a great gift you can use the sensitivity to your body. It can guide you and your opening to it will make it better. Of course, sensitive people want to shut the doors to the world and their bodies. They become fearful. You can't do that. Self-expression is the better way. Okay, yes. Um, I, I think that's, that's a really good, um, piece of advice. Like, and that's something that I haven't quite mastered, to be honest, you know, um, I think it's important for healers to be open about, um, them having sort of struggles too. And I I really have not mastered like when, like how much of my energy should be, um, you know, withdrawn and how much of my energy should I put myself out there? It seems like I'm still learning how to do this balancing act. And I think for the highly sensitive person, it might be like a lifelong kind of thing here, right? Um, so let's, uh, let's, for the last part of this episode, let's go over 
just some more tips about how the highly sensitive person can like better parent themselves, especially if we're also healing some of these attachment issues. Again, um, highly sensitive people don't necessarily have to have attachment issues, but I think it's important to look at yeah, to, to look at attachment issues from a highly sensitive perspective because we are highly sensitive people. So in order to heal highly sensitive people problems, we need to first look at things from a highly sensitive person's perspective, which is why I find this book so valuable. So, um, so this is a part about rest. Um, haha, right? So, <laughs> I feel like everybody's relationship to rest is so fucked up, you know? Um, Infants need a lot of rest, don't they? So do highly sensitive bodies. We need all kinds of rest. First, we need sleep. If you have trouble sleeping, make this your first priority. Research on chronic sleep loss has found that when people are allowed to sleep as much as they need, It can take two weeks for them to reach the point where they show no signs of sleep deprivation, dropping off to sleep abnormally quickly or in a darkened room. If you are showing signs of sleep sleep debt, you need to make a plan. Um, You need to plan some vacation time periodically that allows you to do nothing but sleep as much as you want. You will be surprised how much that will be. Okay, so that's on page 55. Obviously, there's, you know, there's privilege in in being able to do that, right? Um, and this is kind of where it makes me, yeah, I mean, this is something that everybody's talking about. It makes me sad because only it feels like only the most privileged people can really afford the time and money and sort of... Um, yeah, to, to heal, right? It shouldn't be like that. Like, everybody deserves to heal. Like, the person who can take two weeks off to heal their chronic sleep issues, you know, it, it, you know, they're not the only, they might be very rich, or they might have some kind of resources that allow them to take two weeks off. But there's also going to be another highly sensitive person um, who's, you know, working a blue collar job who hasn't had a day off in nine months who also has insomnia, right? So what is that person supposed to do? Um, So obviously our our inequalities in this world obviously affect how much we can heal ourselves. I do think that everybody um, can start to reparent themselves, but I also think having access to the mindset of what is reparenting, what's the philosophy behind it, um, that's also a privilege, right? So I th- thought I'd just mention that, something to think about. Um, we need other rest too, however. Highly sensitive people tend to be very conscientious and perfectionistic. We cannot play until all the details of our work are done guilty. (laughs) The details are like little needles of arousal poking at us, but that can make it very difficult to relax and have fun. The infant body wants to play, and the play creates endorphins and all the good changes that undo stress. If you are depressed, overly emotional in other ways, not sleeping or showing signs of being out of balance, force yourself to plan for more play. But what is fun? That's a good question, Elaine Aaron. What is fun? 
Um, be careful not to let the non-highly sensitive person in your world define fun for you. I wish someone told me that earlier. For many highly sensitive people, fun is just reading a good book or gardening a little bit at their own pace or a quiet meal at home prepared to be eaten slowly. In particular, squeezing in a dozen activities by by noon may not be your idea of fun at all. Yeah, stop make it, trying to make yourself an introvert. That's not fun, right? Like, as uh, for me, like the introvert's definition of fun is my definition of like get me the hell out of here, right? Um, but my definition of fun is like like Elaine Aaron said, like walking, meditating reading whatever it may be and that's okay like why is that version of fun any less legitimate than something like going to a party or shopping or whatever it may be right um and and i think that's important to note too as highly sensitive people um one time i had a client who was like i hate fun (laughs) and i was like oh my god i thought i was the only one who hates fun (laughs) Like, I had never heard another person verbalize that except myself. So when I heard that client verbalize it, I just was like, oh, man, you know, obviously we're on the same frequency. <laughs> um, and I think, too, um, I think, too, here on page 57 to sort of wrap this episode up, we have some other strategies for over arousal. So let's read this a good caretaker develops many strategies for soothing his or her infant some are more psychological some are more physical either approach will change the other choose according to your intuition any approach requires taking action getting up going to the infant doing something for an example you walk into new york's penn station and are overwhelmed and begin to feel afraid psychologically or physically you need to do something to keep the infant body from getting upset so again like it's kind of weird to think like we have this like crying baby inside of us but we all do right and can I just say that that's something that I go to when I need compassion you know because that's something I know for sure I know for sure that every single person on this planet you know, no matter what their political view is, no matter what their opinion is, no matter how they, whatever, who they're voting for, every single person on this planet has like an infant body or an infant, a crying infant inside of them, right? So remember that, you know, remember that, you know, in times when we're not getting very, Showing others compassion at this moment seems to be kind of difficult, right? Hearing someone other, hearing someone else's viewpoint or hearing someone else's opinion that's different from yours is getting more and more like hostile and volatile, right? So I think if we can all kind of come to this remembrance that, you know, literally everybody has a crying baby inside of them that they're either caring, taking care of or not, Um, that can help us with our compassion, right? Um, So again, going back, we're in Penn Station. Psychologically or physically, you need to do something to keep this infant body from getting upset. 
In this case, it might be a good idea to work through the fear and upset psychologically. This is not a noisy helm feared with hell fear, filled with dangerous strangers. It is just a large version of many train stations you have dealt with, overflowing with normal people trying to get where they want to go, with plenty who would help you if you asked. Here are some other psychological methods useful for handling over arousal. Reframe the situation. Repeat a phrase, prayer, or mantra that throughout the daily practice you have come to associate with deep inner calm. Witness your over arousal. Love the situation. Love your over arousal. Okay, I kind of like that, even though it kind of sounds fluffy. You know, something with anxiety or depression for me that literally never works is trying to deny it or trying to be like, go away now. <laughs> I'm not, you know, like I'm not in the mood right now. Like that just never works. It, it's always whatever uncomfortable emotion that comes up for us. It's always a little bit better to just accept it, you know, just accepting that it's here. Then you can actually get somewhere, right? Um, and... And yeah, that's, that seems like kind of all, do I have anything else that I wanted to read? Oh, wait. Okay. This is a really good place to end. Okay. Um, let's end here on page 62. The infant body's message. Okay. So if our infant body, which we know from a previous part in this book, we know the infant body cannot verbally communicate with us, right? You can only communicate through feeling and intuition. However, um, if the infant body were able to talk, this these are some of the things that it may say to you, okay? And I would encourage you to really listen hard on some of these things because some of these things could really make a difference for how you are caring for yourself and how you are reparenting yourself, okay? Number one, Please don't make me handle more than I can. I am helpless when you do this and I hurt all over. Please, please, please protect me. I was born this way and can't change. I know you sometimes think awful things must have made me this way or at least made me worse, but that ought to give you even more sympathy for me because either way, I can't help it. Either way, don't blame me for how I am. Check in, check in on me often and take care of me right at that moment if you possibly can. Then when you can't, I can trust that if you are at least trying, I won't have long to wait. If you must make me wait for rest, please ask me nicely if that's okay. I'm only more miserable and troublesome if you get angry or try to force me. When I'm exhausted, I need sleep. Even when it, I seem totally wide awake, a regular schedule and a calm routine before bed are important to me. Otherwise, I will lie awake in bed, all stirred up for hours. I need a lot of time in bed, even if I'm lying awake. I may need it in the middle of the day too. Please let me have it. Get to know me better. For example, noisy restaurants seem silly to me. How can anyone eat in them? I have a lot of feelings about these things. 
I don't want you to coddle me. I especially don't want you to think of me or sick or of as sick or weak. I am wonderfully clever and strong in my way. I certainly don't want you hovering over me, worried about me all day, or making a lot of excuses for me. I don't want to seem as a nuisance to you or others. Above all, I just want to count on you. Please don't ignore me. Love me. And like me as I am. I am as I am. Okay. So let's leave it at that, kids. Let's let that marinate until next time. I hope this episode served you in some way. It was so nice to hang out with my 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 homies, my highly sensitive people um, today. And thanks if you've made it to the end of my blabbing. You know, thank you so much. And I will talk to you for um, for the next episode, which will be the October sermon. So talk to you guys next time. Before you go, I just wanted to say thank you so much to my Patreon supporters. You are all supporting the creation of this podcast in a bigger way than you even realize. If you want to know more about my offerings on Patreon, including access to the Secret Horoscope Witch YouTube channel, the link is in the show notes. I am a professional astrologer, tarot reader, Reiki practitioner, and psychic intuitive. If you are interested in working with me one-on-one or getting a reading from me, you can visit my website, horoscopewitch.com, to learn more about my offerings. If you find this podcast to be helpful, I would greatly appreciate your rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews not only make my day, but also increase the chances of others finding this podcast too. And if you like this episode, feel free to share it with a friend.